Hello, and welcome to the Rethink Missions podcast, where we learn from the stories and lessons of cross-cultural servants to the unreached people groups of the world. Welcome to today's episode. Here's your host, Jeremy Wardlaw. Welcome to another episode of Rethink Missions podcast. I'm excited for today's episode. It's actually our last episode of season two, but don't worry, we'll get you another episode in the coming year here. But in this episode, we're going to be interviewing and talking to my guest here, who is Pete Humphreys. He's a trainer and leader of mine, and he's had a church planting experience um, in the Chaco Desert of Paraguay, and he saw, by God's grace, a church established there. And we want to hear his story and the lessons in his story that he can give us. And another way you can get um, these lessons and his story is through a book. It's called Inca Ha, How Sweet It Is. You can find that on goodseed.com. I'm going to leave a link to, to the book so you can find that um, through the where whatever your player is. It should have a, a description of the episode, and you'll be able to find um, how you can get that book. But that's a long intro to say I'm I'm so excited you're here, Pete, and I'm just ex- excited to hear your story again and some of the lessons. Could you just set the stage for us? You were church planting among the Manhui people. Um, how did they live? Where did they live? How isolated from the gospel were they? Um, just set the stage for us. Okay, if we go back in time to the uh, early 70s, 1970s, in the Gran Chaco of South America, there was a small uh, group of people known as the Manhui. And this was a classic unreached people group. Uh, They were living pretty much in isolation in the jungle, They were hunters and gatherers, uh, surviving one day at a time as they uh, found barely enough food to sustain their small group and oftentimes were more desperate to find water uh, than even food. Uh, The Chaco region is exceedingly hot. It is very, very dry, long seasonal droughts, no natural above-ground source of water, Uh, no rivers, no springs, no lakes. Uh, The only uh, water that exists in that region of the Chaco uh, is found in very, very small lagoons that um, where the water gathered in the brief uh, rainy season. Typically, these would be surrounded by uh, big trees that would shade them, and of course, the Manhui people knew where all these water holes were, and they would uh, migrate from one to the other. And as they dried up uh, in the course of the, the drought, they would move in hopes of finding water at the next water hole, oftentimes being disappointed and uh, surviving in those conditions off of a root that they would dig up and uh, suck the moisture out of. But just a very, very uh, rugged, uh, difficult existence. Add to that their belief system, 
uh, and they were they were not set up very well for success. They were afraid of literally everything. Uh, many of their beliefs uh, contributed negatively to their health, um, such as food taboos. You can imagine uh, living in a region where the scrub jungle was was um, stingy enough, and then these food taboos uh, kept them from eating uh, much of the l- little amount of food that they would find. So they would be uh, reduced to a very weakened state uh, state of health, and any type of cold or flu that came along would often be devastating for them. At, at that time, there was also a neighboring tribe uh, that was much more aggressive than the Manhui and uh, sought to track them down and, uh, and obliterate them. And there were uh, many, many stories of historical attacks from this neighboring tribe. Uh, and pretty much everybody that uh, was living at the time when we moved into the jungle had relatives, parents, siblings, uncles and aunts who had been killed by uh, this neighboring tribe. Uh, So fear was a big part of their daily existence. Fear of starvation, fear of dying of thirst, fear of the spirit world, fear of being attacked uh, by this other tribe. And uh, that was the state in in which uh, we... Uh, moved in among the Manhui people. Now we were we were not the first missionaries on location there. Uh, there had been uh, a number of missionary couples, families that had moved out there to do the initial setup, but for one reason or another, they were unable to remain there. So there was a fairly high turnover rate of the uh, original uh, missionary team missionary uh, families. Um, Another huge factor was that this group, uh, living in isolation, were completely monolingual. They only spoke their tribal dialect. And that was a language that had not ever been reduced to writing. Our co-workers, Gordy and Nancy Hunt, were the ones that were uh, responsible to do the linguistic analysis and uh, figure out how we were going to write this language. And uh, we were grateful for their expertise in in that area. And we took more of a uh, language learning approach where we just spent time with the people. We were using the skills and and things that we had learned in the course of our our training and uh, began to make that our primary goal is to become proficient speakers of the Manhui language. Uh, it was decided by the uh, the team at that time that I would assume the primary responsibility for uh, development of uh, chronological Bible teaching lessons, and then uh, I would be the primary teacher uh, oral teacher to the Manhui, to our Manhui friends. Uh, during that same time when uh, I was developing 
uh, chronological lessons in the vernacular of the of the Manui people. Uh, our co-worker Gordy was um, undertaking the task of translating scripture, mm-hmm. and so we were working somewhat in tandem, sharing uh, terminology. Uh, much of the terminology that uh, we ended up adopting for spiritual vocabulary uh, had to go through a process of being proven in teaching context. Okay, and so uh, that was uh, that was my primary responsibility. So okay, so you when did you move in? What nineteen eighty? Nineteen eighty, and you were there with another family. We were there with two other families two at other that family. time. Yeah. Yes, we had a um, another couple, another family that was there, who was primarily responsible for the physical work. Uh, we were required uh, by the government at that time to provide a socioeconomic program for uh, the tribal people. And what was that program? Uh, in those early years, we attempted a number of uh, initiatives, uh, planting crops, which is a really dicey endeavor in the in the Chaco region. Um, cause it's sand and well, it's, it's just, it's so hot and, uh, rain is so unpredictable. Um, and, and the soil is, is not the best there. It's a clay type of, right. of soil as well. So, uh, I can remember, um, efforts to grow things like, um, castor beans and then sell the, sell the beans and, uh, other types of of beans and and eventually we shifted away from uh cash crops and realized that the future of that region would be in cattle okay and yep. and so we began to um pay our uh manhui friends uh to clear sections of the jungle for pasture and typically they would work half a day and we would pay them a going wage in cash. And then they would go to a little store that uh, we had set up there and we would bring in provisions. And they would buy things like rice or corn or yerba mate so they could have their terere, which is their traditional drink. And uh, just their basic, uh, basic needs for right. food. Uh, so that was what we had set up as a socioeconomic program. So you got to the point where you've moved in and now you're learning the language. Um, can you give me an idea of how different this language is from Spanish? Yeah, it is in a linguistic family unrelated to uh, the national language Spanish or uh, unrelated to the other national language Guarani. It's in a linguistic family all of its own. Can you tell me a story in, in Manhui? Just a quick anecdote? I can, I can anecdote. tell you uh, just a quick story. <laughs> I, I hear a lot of glottal stops and 
Yeah, it, like, it's quite different from yeah. uh, from English. Uh, there were sounds that we were not com- familiar with initially, but uh, like anything else, enough practice and uh, the tongue adapts and uh, it, it became quite comfortable uh, <laughs> speaking that language. So, so, um, so you got to the point where you could teach, and how long did it take to get that to that? language level you know in those days we did not have the same benefit of uh, consultants uh, that we have today in retrospect i look back and i realized that uh, i probably began um, my teaching career if i can refer to it as that among the monhui prematurely but we did not have the kind of language checks at that time that would say, okay, you're at such and such a level, which now uh, clears you to begin teaching. So you feel like you could have even learned more, but how, how long did were you in language learning? Um, moved in in 1980, had, a, had to build a house first, did not do a lot of language study during that time. No. Uh, trying to get the family into some kind of a, a safe place. And then um, more of my efforts went into language learning. And it wasn't until about uh, 1984 um, when uh, Gordy went on furlough, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly. He had actually started... Uh, putting some lessons together and teaching those lessons. Then he went on furlough, and at that time I took over. And uh, then it became my primary responsibility as he still needed to work on finishing up the linguistic analysis as well as uh, give him give himself to translation. Right. So you still took a chunk of time <clears throat> in language learning. Yeah, and, I would. Uh, I would think that you know, knowing what I know now, which is still not very much. <laughs> um, More than me. I, I probably could have used another year or two of, okay. of just intense language learning. And here's the other the other part of it as I look back. Um, I probably uh, reached a level of proficiency in the language um Prior to reaching proficiency in the culture, okay, I did not understand their their worldview um, as well as I should have when I began teaching. And it wasn't until several years into teaching that I realized, wow, I need to do some really in-depth uh, digging into how the Manhui mind works. Right. It's not just a language barrier. That's right. Yeah. So tell me about that process from starting to teach to when was maybe the first time you really thought they're really understanding the Word of God as it is and not twisting it or misunderstanding it. Yeah, that was a, that was a long process. 
I, I remember after a, a few years of teaching, I, I can't remember exactly what year it was, we came home uh, on home assignment, went to a, what, what was referred to at that time as refresher course. And <clears throat> while we were there, uh, we we watched the film Itao. I had heard about it from Papua New Guinea, Mark Zuck, with the with the Mok people, and I remember sitting in this auditorium with probably several hundred colleagues, missionary colleagues from around the world, watching this. Uh, representation of the church plant that had taken place among the Mok people. And I remember at the end of, of that film feeling pretty discouraged. Yeah. Cause that uh, was not your experience. It was not our experience at all. And there are, are identifiable reasons why uh, Mark's experience as a church planner was quite different than ours. Um, and I'm I'm thrilled that the Mok came to understand in the relatively short period of time that they did. In our uh, church planning experience among the Manhui, from the time I, I began teaching until the church was born was 12 years. Wow. 12 years. 12 years. And during that time... Uh, we had uh, probably after about uh, maybe four years, somewhere in there, we had a, a people movement where they were saying, yeah, we believe, yeah, we believe. But as we continued on, we began to realize that yes, they were embracing the benefits or the perceived benefits of Christianity, but what we had been teaching had not uh, had not changed their traditional worldview. So we had a classic example of syncretism going on there. And uh, I I own a lot of the responsibility for that. I think it was my. Um, my ignorance regarding uh, worldview issues. Um, I was a, a young, ambitious uh, church planter. I was focused on speaking uh, the language as well as possible and accurately representing the message from creation right through to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And <clears throat> again, in retrospect, I, I, I think my focus was on the linguistic aspect of doing that. And I think I was doing that fairly successfully, but what was missing was the worldview issues. I was not teaching in a style uh, that was actually creating a tension in the minds of the hearers between what they uh, believed traditionally, what they had uh, learned from their ancestors and what they were hearing from the Word of God. Uh, and, and so it was after about eight years of teaching when I realized, and in fellowship with our, our uh, 
co-workers uh, there in the jungle, we embarked on a completely different approach to teaching. So after eight years. After eight years. So just walk me through <clears throat> how you were feeling. I mean, for it's one thing to, in retrospect, say, oh, we had to make a change after eight years. In that moment where you're thinking, have we done more harm than good? Like, just walk me through that as you experienced it. You know, I remember, <clears throat> I remember one night in particular. Uh, I had been up in in one of the villages uh, teaching, and as was so typical there in the Chaco, it was just unbearably hot. But I would always go to the village in the evenings with my denim jacket, with my collar turned up because of the mosquitoes. So you had the heat. And the mosquitoes, and you're sitting there around the smoky fire. And that particular night, as I was wrapping up the teaching session and interacting with my Manhui friends there, uh, they began to express that that they were understanding what I was teaching. And so I had this sense of excitement, this this sense of okay, well, we're we're finally getting somewhere. So I came home pretty pumped, uh, went to bed, and and uh, because that area is so hot, our our large screened windows were wide open, and you you eventually just pass out from from weariness, exhaustion, exhaustion. You're uncomfortable, but exhausted. That's right. That's right. And and so. I remember uh, sleeping for uh, perhaps a couple hours and then waking up uh, and hearing some pretty aggressive chanting, which was very, very normal for where we lived. We lived right in the village. We had little clusters of Manhui people all around us. But what was different about this night was as I laid there in bed listening to this uh, this heavy chanting, I realized that those who were chanting were the same individuals who had been at the teaching a few hours earlier mm-hmm. and and were telling me that they were understanding and believing what they were hearing from the Word of God. And as I lay there listening to them, I found myself getting very angry mm. and uh, climbed out of bed went and stood by the window. Of course, no electricity, so it's pitch black. And I'm standing there by this window, looking across through the darkness to the village where the chanting was coming from. And I remember telling the Lord at that time and saying, God, I am wasting my life in this miserable place. By that time, we'd been there probably 11, 12 years. Mm. I had given my life to carry the gospel to people, and I wanted to see people get saved. I wanted to see my life make a difference eternally in the, in the lives of others. And it wasn't happening. And I felt indignant. And I felt angry towards God. And uh, so as I'm standing there having this emotional experience and pouring my heart out to God. It was as if 
it was as if God asked me this question. I did not hear anything audible, but it was as if he asked me this question. Pete, do you have a problem if I choose to waste your life in this place? If if that's what I choose to do with your life, do you have a problem with it? Well, I had a big problem with it. I was ready to shake the dust off my sandals and go somewhere else, find a group like the Mulk that I could teach for a few months, and boom, we have a church. That's oversimplification of, of obviously what took place with the Mulk. But I, I just was very weary of my ministry there with the Manhui. But in that moment... Uh, of, of just honesty with, with God and telling him how I was feeling, I was reminded of Scripture that says, what, know you not, that your body is the temple of the living God. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify your Father which is in heaven. And I realized, you know what, it's, it's up to God. If God chooses to have me live in this village, for the rest of my days, and I never see fruit, if that's what he chooses, that's his prerogative. And it became a matter of obedience. I had to become satisfied to obey and take my eyes off the results Mm -hmm. and not see myself as being successful based on Numbers of people who came to know the Lord. And, and this was during this time, understand that we were making, we had made several uh, trips back to North America to visit our support network. And one of the typical questions is how many believers are there? How many believers are there? And, and, you know, so 12 years in, I'm still saying we have zero believers. We have zero believers. Well, what, what's going on there? And so that night, I settled it with the Lord. I said, God, by your grace and your strength, if if you require me to live here for the rest of my days and not see the results, then then you need to be the one to enable me to be faithful to that mm-hmm. and to be satisfied with obedience. And so I... Uh, Drove a stake in the ground, and by God's grace, continued on. Mm. And from that point, it was another four years of teaching. Right. But that was a major milestone for you. It was. Yeah. Personally, in my own heart, but also in terms of teaching style. Okay. And that was a big shift. And I went back through all the lessons again and reworked them. And every lesson... Um, required that I was able to identify in the Manhui worldview the corresponding belief that was in contradiction to the, to the primary concepts that I was teaching about God in that particular lesson. <coughs> and teach in such a style that they were left clearly with, uh, a, a choice understanding that both couldn't be true. Right. That they were mutually exclusive concepts. What God was saying in his word and what they had inherited from their ancestors could not both be 
true. One is true, or they're both false. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And um, the other thing that became very clear to us. So let me just back up here. So at, at this point, uh, I went headlong into um, worldview analysis. Of course, we were far enough along in the language that we could ask the questions and understand the responses. Uh, and we had had some, some guidance by that time regarding what types of questions to ask to find out about uh, animism, what they believe, how it plays out in their minds. And um, so... The two things were going on there. I was delving into the worldview so that I could identify where their misunderstanding would, would come. But we also realized that as a people group, they were grossly underdeveloped in their uh, deductive reasoning skills. As hunters and gatherers, they were not a group of people that sat around pondering the deep things of life and trying to figure out how does this all work. They just didn't do that. Their intellectual energies were all focused on how do we find water? Right. How do we find food? Which takes a lot of energy. It does. It consumed all the energy they had. And consequently, uh, they were, were very handicapped in terms of deductive thinking. And, and, and we, I want to make it really clear that we're not talking about IQ. We're not talking about in, in uh, intelligence, this is a very intelligent people group, but they were underdeveloped in their ability to hear uh, a concept and independently draw the conclusion that the concept I just heard is is different from what I've previously believed. So we began to teach in a way that taught them how to do that. Mm. We laid it out, here's what the ancestor said, here's what God says. Are they the same? How are they different? And and over time, train them how to hear, deduce correctly, and that's where the tension then began to develop, where they didn't have a choice. I mean, I mean they didn't, they couldn't accept both their historical worldview and the Word of God. They had to make a choice. Which one they were, they right. were going to believe. Yeah. That's right. So you you were teaching in that way. Now, today, where are the Manhui? What's the situation there? So in 1995 uh, is, is when we were privileged to watch uh, New Life come into the Manhui world. And it began slowly with a small group of those who stood up and gave crystal clear testimony to the fact that they were rejecting the lies of Satan that had filtered down through their ancestors and they were embracing the message of Christ as their sole trust in their eternal salvation. I will never forget uh, those those times of being together with uh, that group of people and hearing these different ones get up and share their faith. And, and so we 
we did not delay to begin to disciple new believers. We started within days. We we brought this small group of professing believers apart from the greater group, and we began to instruct them in principles and truths that apply to them, the, their position in Christ, um, and, and just begin to ground them. At the same time, I began right away to train the next generation of Bible teachers and co-taught with them uh, within within weeks of them professing faith. Wow. And And how was that? I mean, that's a pretty big moment for you to see this, the church born and functioning? Um, how were they at teaching? It was, um, it was brand new to them. Uh, that was something that they were not accustomed to. Uh, but by this time, they had witnessed us as missionaries teaching for many, many years. Uh, not only me teaching Bible stories, but they had begun to be taught how to read and write their own language. Gordy had finished up the linguistic analysis and had um, come up with an orthography. So we were writing the, the language now and teaching them how to read and write their, their own language. Um, one of the things that we did that I, I think the Lord just gave us wisdom to, to take this particular course uh, from the very, very beginning, there was never a lesson that was taught that was not written out full length. Uh, we did not teach from outlines. We taught from lessons that were written out word for word. Part of that was necessary, especially in the early years of teaching, because of our level of language proficiency. These were lessons that were translated in draft form, they were checked back with uh, Manhui people to make sure that we were speaking correctly. And then in many cases, um, I would I would have that lesson in front of me uh, pretty much memorized by the time uh, I went to teach it and would make sure that everything I had written in that lesson got communicated. Okay. I was not afraid to to read a lesson. Uh, but in, in most cases, I was familiar enough with the, with the text that I could just at a glance remember what needed to be said and then say it. But we did not want to promote an idea among the Manhui people that they had to become great orators, um, from the, from the hip. That it was at least initially more important that whatever they taught was true to the text rather than just getting up and telling what they could remember because that's where inaccuracy comes into the story. Mm-hmm. And because that was the style they had seen, they had always witnessed the lesson in front of me along with the Word of God when I taught. That's how we taught them mm-hmm. to teach as well. Mm-hmm. They were not highly literate, so it was it was painful at first. Uh <laughs> But you got to start somewhere. Yeah, you got to start somewhere. And now today, where's the Manhui Church at? There is a 
I don't know what the numbers are at this point in time, uh, but there is what I would refer to as a faithful nucleus of believers there. Some of the, the same guys that uh, that I trained back in the 1990s are continuing on faithful as leaders in the church. They have also gone ahead and, and trained other faithful men. So there's a lot of younger uh, leaders who are uh, skilled at teaching the Word of God, uh, teaching the gospel. And uh, it, it looks perhaps different from what we would maybe want it to look like. It looks very Manhui. Uh, it doesn't look Western at all. Uh, but there are faithful, faithful believers there who are wow. continuing to grow and and stay true to to the Word of God. Amazing. That's amazing. And they're a witness to the rest of their people group. There's a, so there's one church right. there. Right. And they're reaching out right. to the rest and, of the Yes, people. and, and the, the Manhui people have... Uh, not only have they uh, grown numerically from the years when we first uh, lived among them, uh, I don't know what their their current uh, numbers would be, but probably well over a thousand. Um, they're not a huge group by in comparison to some other groups, but from where they were when we moved in there. Man, they've really grown. Uh, and they are typically working on ranches throughout okay. the Chaco region in small family groups and periodically come back into their main uh, place that is secured for them. There's a property that uh, we were able to purchase for them, and that's what they consider their their home. Mm. And they they come back and forth from that. They go out, they do work, then they come back. And... Uh, that's kind of the the hub. It's amazing. Thank you for sharing your story. Can you give us some just final lessons um, for people like me that are just headed out <clears throat> or someone out there already kind of just starting off their ministry, some words of advice that you want to give to us? Yeah, one of the... One of the things I remember, and I'm I'm just so grateful for how the Lord led in this area. We we moved in in 1980, and I remember us us men, generally three, or, and later on there were four of us as co-workers. We would get together every morning about 6:30 in the morning and pray. One of the things we prayed for. Uh, for all of those years before there were believers was that as we live among the Manhui people, whether we're playing their games with them, whether we're in the jungle hunting with them, uh, hanging out with them, that, that by the time they became believers, they would already have a pretty good idea of what, it looks like to live as a Christian hmm. from having witnessed our lives. And I believe the Lord honored that. Hmm. I believe the Lord kept us from demonstrating things that would be inappropriate uh, in terms of responses and reactions and uh, 
Um, yeah, we just wanted to be a, a, a living epistle seen and read of all men and to have the testimonies that would set them up for success when they became believers. And, and that kept us accountable mm-hmm. as well. And uh, I, I don't think we can un- we can't underestimate how important it is prior to people coming to know the Lord that they see our lives mm. as being Christ-like. Amazing. Thank you so much for that. And um, because we are the church that's there, there isn't an indigenous church yet, but as church yeah. planters, we're the example of what it is to be a Christian, right? Yeah, that's right. Man, what a challenge to anybody that we, as we're witnessing to people, we're also, if they do become believers, they're also seeing our lives and seeing what it will look like or could look like if they become believers. Well, and taking it, taking it a step further. Right. Uh, unbelievers should be drawn to the, the source of the difference. They should see a, such a difference in us as professing believers mm-hmm. that their curiosity can't be contained anymore. And it, it, they want to understand why are you like that? Why do you experience peace in the midst of trials? Why are you hopeful? Why do you have joy? Those are all things that are supposed to be evident in our lives. And uh, the world doesn't understand that, but that should draw people to the gospel. Amen. Thank you so much, P. Humphreys. Thank you. And uh, God bless to all of you out there listening. We're praying for you and thinking of you. Amen. You've been listening to the Rethink Missions podcast. For more information and episodes, go to wmissions.com. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review and subscribe.